David Flaherty, Marketing Director for Washington Wine. This is Somlight. Somlight is a conversation series where we talk to some of our favorite wine pros from around the country, talk a little bit of shop, but more importantly, find out what makes them human and what makes them tick. I'm incredibly honored today to welcome to the show Chris McFall. Chris McFall is an advanced sommelier who's currently working at the three Michelin starred single thread farms in Healdsburg, California. Prior to that, he worked extensively in Austin, Houston, and Chicago at many renowned restaurants, including Papa's Brothers Steakhouse, Mastro's at the Post Oak, McGuire Mormon Hospitality, and the two Michelin starred Lazy Bear in San Francisco. Vacation at numerous restaurants and also has experience as an owner operator. In 2012, Chris was named Best New Sommelier by Wine and Spirits Magazine. Chris, it's awesome to see you, man. First off, how are you and where are you? I am in Petaluma, California at home uh, at my kitchen table and I'm doing great surviving this crazy time. How are you? I'm doing well, man. It's good to see you. Good to see you as well. All right, we're going to get started. This is a picture of you <laughs> on a camel in yes, Morocco. Indeed. So start by telling us what you learned about camels. Well, one, they're much larger than advertised. It's kind of crazy uh, to get on them. They actually sit down for you. They do indeed spit. That's a real thing. When, when they sit down, it's kind of like watching this unfold happen. You get on, they stand up, and it is, it is daunting how, how tall they are, how, how huge they are. It's much taller than you might think, like riding a horse. Uh, it's somewhere between a horse and an elephant, I think. But they're really incredible, kind of docile, friendly animals. At, at what point does the uh, spitting come into the? <laughs> you know, it's part of uh, part of their ritual. It just says they're walking. It's kind of like walk, chew, spit. It's pretty impressive. Um, but yeah, that was a really really amazing time in Morocco. It, we were on a on a bus and saw by this beach called uh, Hercules Beach all of these camels, and so we decided to get out and see if we could hang out, maybe ride one, and we did. So cool. they literally. End at the knees, like just like lower down. Yeah, it's like it almost feels like something out of out of Star Wars. I can't remember those those animals' names, but uh, they like truly like unfold, buckle down to ground level, and then. Pop. Are you are you referring to the tauntaun? I am. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Sorry, I, I lose a point for a lack of. Oh, I mean that, that's like the greatest quote in like any Star Wars, right? Where was it? Han Solo like cut the tauntaun open because inside its body cavity, it was warm and you could put Luke's like frozen body inside the warm Tauntaun body and he of cut course. it open, the guts come out and he said, and I thought they smelled bad on the outside. <laughs> Pretty <Tauntaun. great. laughs> I'll never forget. Well, enough about camels, but I'm glad to hear that you are also an expert on camels as well <laughs> as wine and many other things. There's, there's something about you, like you're, you're, you're great at two things. You're great at being incredibly professional. But you're also really great at breaking through the stuffiness of being professional. You seem to like ride that line pretty well. And I think the wine world needs more of that. I think when people think of sommeliers, they think of people that are, are overly stuffy and stiff. Is that something that you've kind of intentionally opted to, to play against in, in your career? Not necessarily intentional. I think the intention is to, to try to be myself within parameters of whatever it is that I'm, I'm doing or a part of. There is, a, I think, a fun line towing of, of a relative playful cheekiness uh, that can kind of draw people out of their shell and relax people a little bit uh, 
you know, a simple bit of humor, trying to pay attention uh, to what, what the guests' needs are. If they're, if they're going to play uh, and, and rub shoulders with a professional smartass, then by all means, it's go time. But with that, I think taking a little bit of the air of stuffiness out of, or the country clubbery out of, out of wine has been something that I've definitely intentionally played to. Wine, at the end of the day, is a, it should be fun. It's a beverage. You know, it, it, it's, a, it's all things considered. It's a, a little bit of art. But yeah, so for, for me, it's always been about making it fun uh, more than, than anything. Making your dining experience fun, making the glass of wine fun, and kind of taking that pretension away a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you also like have, you're one of those people whose laugh like reverberates through the room. <laughs> like, I think anyone that knows you knows like the Chris McFall laugh. That sort of like breaking the tension that you mentioned, that sort of like elevating the room, giving some levity. How does like comedy play a role for you in your life and in your career, you know, kind of as a, as a thread for you to kind of like, is that a thing where it just keeps you sane? It keeps you being, not getting too serious? Like where does that kind of fit in for you? Without a doubt. You know, the, the, the threading of laughter is so important to me personally, but also I think to, to everyone around you, I feel like especially if we've learned anything from, from the last year plus uh, or four years, depending on how you're counting, if you can't laugh about it, I mean, it's, it's crazy. So uh, playful jokes and, and things like that really to, to lighten the mood too. I, I love when people are funny and are out to have a good time. So Obviously, I feed off of that, and hopefully they continue to, to feed off of, of my humor as well. But I think having a little bit of a lighthearted nature, uh, especially in, in hospitality or really anything that you do, is important. It's a, it's a way to kind of show people that uh, the walls are down, uh, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, because it's like you, you as, a, as a sommelier, like I think, I don't know, I always find it's interesting. Like you, you have to be able to sell bottles of wine that are in excess of 5,000 bucks, you know? I mean, these are incredible investments for people to make and they have to have trust in you, right? So it's like, you know, you have to ride that line, I think, right? Between being too casual and too goofy where you kind of lose your credibility, if you will, in that role. I mean, is that something that you, you find that you have to navigate too? I mean, I, I, I guess a part of it's probably reading the guest, but. Sure. I, I'm, I'm... That that's the the main point is reading the guests. If they don't want comedy hour, obviously, then you know I I, I can I can do both. But really, the the humor I usually play off of of the table um, or or the guest, whatever whatever situation I'm in. So there is definitely a fine line. But I feel like if you haven't made a a, a table laugh or smile in their experience, and either you didn't do your job or you didn't provide an experience or even worse, they just didn't have a good time. And maybe that's on them, but I feel like there should be some laughter uh, when you're breaking bread and, and drinking wine for sure. What's like the easiest, I mean, it's so, it's so, and maybe it's just like beyond silly to try to break down like comedy at the table, but I am curious, like, do you have any like go-to, like, you know, if you're like, oh man, table 10 going down, like they're, they're way damn serious. They're not having a good time. I'm going to do that go-to bit that I have or like do you have any kind of like you know tips or tricks to like get in there and try to instantly elevate the mood yeah sometimes I think I never try to like have a have like a go-to move I again feeding off of of their energy sometimes that can be super tricky if they're super stuffy or like deadly serious and kind of 
sometimes they're hard nuts to crack. It doesn't always, it doesn't always work. But even a little bit of lighthearted, dry humor, a lot of times when they'll be like, waiter or sommelier, and not recognize the fact that I'm a human being and, and have a name, or they'll be like, hey, buddy. And I'll be like, oh, buddy has the night off tonight, but I'm Chris and I'm happy to help you with anything, you know, stuff yeah. like that. And when people, I think technology being part of like the dining experience now, phones are on the table. People want to take pictures of what you're doing and how you're doing it. And one of the go-to lines that if I was to, to have one uh, is holding the bottle and being like, and you know, one picture per person because I was a hand model for many years, world-class level, and that cost extra. Talk to my agent. Yeah. Hand, hand model jokes are always good. Yeah, hand model, you know, right now, you see. I mean, look at your hands. Those are beautiful hands. <laughs> uh, you, you could be a hand model. You were a hand model. It, it, maybe for a, a brief period of time. Yeah, it's a tough, yeah, tough trying one. To get, trying to get people to think, to relax and, and make them comfortable. And I think sometimes humor works that way. Sometimes executing, you know, kind of deadpan service is sometimes the part of the job. And those are a little bit less enjoyable for me. Uh, but sometimes, obviously, if, if people are having a big time business meeting, don't want to be interrupted, whatever, you know, that's the case. I find that at more upper echelon wine focused restaurants, though, that's less and less of a, of a trend. More people are curious and want to be engaged with uh, the whole process and, you know, what they're drinking, where it's from, you know, and, and the education level in the United States has really like catapulted since I started getting into wine. People know, you know, acid levels, pH, different types of oak. And so, you know, you really got to be on top of that. A sommelier on your level, like you, you, there's, you have like the freedom, I think, of being kind of nomadic mm -hmm. where you can basically like travel to different cities around the country. You have enough credibility now, enough experience. You've worked at enough great restaurants that like you can pretty much get your foot in the door of like any, any restaurant, if, especially if they're looking for people like a high level. So talk to us about that because you also have an expectation when you're on that level and they hire you that you're going to ramp up really quickly, you know? Right. Um, so talk to me about, you know, how do you kind of approach a new restaurant? Because what do restaurants, all restaurants have in common that you've learned and you're like, okay, cool. I know how to operate in this way because all restaurants operate this way. And then what sort of things are you paying attention to where like is unique to each restaurant in terms of maybe the culture or the vibe or something like, talk to us how you're kind of like orienting to a new restaurant quickly. You know, I think there's, there's a level at, at a certain point when you've worked enough events or, you know, being a, a guest some or stodging in certain places where like one of the most important things is to learn the flow of the restaurant. So floor plan, uh, where are the foods coming from, where, where beverage service is happening and kind of understanding that flow and trying to insert yourself in a way to where you're not in the way, uh, but you're working with the flow. And a lot of times, that starts really simply uh, with, with some basic training stuff, but also getting your hands in there. Um, so running some food, obviously you know, clearing some plates, and you start to understand the flow, the speed, uh, and the pace of a place. For instance, when I, when I worked in, in Austin, my very first big kid job at, at Podgy House all those years ago, it seems like a million years ago, transferring from there to, to Papa's Brothers was like night and day. Papa's was insane, intense. I had only dined there uh, at the Dallas location. So when I, when I went in uh, for my interview, I came in the night before 
and dined at the at the service counter. I didn't tell anybody on the team that I was coming in. I don't think at the time, now now I don't think that that would be passable, but at the time no one knew, you know, my my story or like where I'm from, my face wasn't recognizable really. Um, so I was able to kind of sneak in and I really wanted to get a sense of what I was walking into. And at that time I had spent the better part of six months traveling around the country and really even around the world when it would, when, when the opportunity would present itself and I would piggyback or stage or observe a service somewhere because I really wanted to ramp up my own personal education on how different formats or different styles work. And man, when I walked into Papa's Brothers, the energy level was so crazy. It was so high. It was so busy to where everything around me that was happening, I was just blown away. I mean, uh, I think that there was something, had to be something like 350 people in the building. The bar was insanely full. People were still coming into the door. And this, I, I came in at like nine o'clock and people all around me at all the different tables were, were crushing wine, service things were happening. Glassware is going down, Giridons are coming over, you know, decanting this, that, and the other thing is happening. All the while there's, you know, food. I'm staring at the, at the kitchen. They're plating like crazy. People are running food left and right. And so I had a really good idea of what I was walking into when I, when I walked into that building and my training was kind of plug and play. It was like, Hey, you need to stand at the kitchen for a little bit. And one of our sommeliers went down. They were like, Hey man, we need you on the floor. And I was like, cool. I fucking don't know where anything is. And I know nothing, but where do I go? And I knew the basics. I knew position numbers, table numbers, uh, and kind of the flow of sections. And this happened within my, I think my second or third shift at, at Papa's Brothers. And it was just like, whoa. And really from there, I feel like I could, because of Papa's and how much of like a, a graduate program that is for getting your ass kicked in a restaurant and loving it, I felt super confident in going into any building and watching the flow of traffic and service and kind of dissecting that and then being able to jump in without being, being in the way. Um, but different styles of service, some of it takes, uh, takes a lot of learning. I really struggled at Lazy Bear in the beginning because it's a communal dining experience. Um, so you have two tables, 42 guests all at the, at the same time. You start with the service upstairs and it's snacks and then you bring everybody downstairs and there's all of these moving parts and it kind of breaks every conventional rule of, of service. So going from all the different styles and places that I've been to, Lazy Bear was tough for me to understand the flow and not screw it up because obviously you're under a microscope of pressure in the Michelin world of getting it right all the time. But like, for example, breaking rules of serving things from one side or the other, it goes with the flow of traffic. So it was, it was a really cool eye-opening educational experience. But I feel like after some of the places that are under my belt that, that I feel confident that I can walk into a place and, and make a pretty immediate impact. That's the hope anyway. That's an interesting observation. Like I hadn't thought of like that being kind of the DNA of a restaurant is the flow, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's really interesting to think about, but that's it, right? It's like, the, it's a, it's a rhythm. It's a, an understanding of like the roots that people walk. <laughs> so you don't right. run into somebody carrying, you know, eight ribeye steaks and like, right a whole bucket of Bernays sauce that's going to go down your beautiful $800 suit, you know, on your yeah. first night on the job. Then you go to like, you know, talk to me too, because I, I always find it interesting because you, you're not from Texas originally, Correct. but you ended up working in Austin and you ended up working extensively in Houston. And th there, I've spent significant time in both those cities. 
and, and dined out a fair amount, a uh, family down there. And I'm always kind of amazed. There, there does seem to be a warmth to Texas hospitality. I mean, I know people kind of talk about it, but is that something that you found was different from say Chicago or was it maybe just those specific restaurants that I happen to be going to that kind of like, that was the vibe they were trying to create? I think Sunshine does a lot of wonderful things for people (laughs) from Texas outside of like maybe July, August and early September, uh, because that's just brutal. But I do think that there is a a genuine, a genuine warmth with kind of that Texas friendly, welcoming uh, Southern hospitality aspect. Austin is really amazing uh, in the fact that even at the nicest restaurants, it's it's still very casual. You can walk in with, you know, jeans and flip-flops and a t-shirt and uh, you may be some big wig in some new tech thing that's happening and have all the money in the world. And uh, you may be in a three-piece suit uh, on on your first date. So it's all, all walks. And uh, it was a really great ground for me to understand uh, really how to take good care of people regardless of of judging a book by the cover one of my very first experiences in selling major league wine was a guy who came in with a columbia fishing shirt after that had the texas longhorns emblem on it after a a home game and you know they bought a essentially a a brand new bmw worth of of wine and he was wearing you know shorts flip-flops and a and a columbia fishing shirt so you know, judging a book by its cover is a tricky thing and became a really great regular and a, a, a great pillar of, of what we were trying to build at that restaurant in Austin. And in Houston, it's so amazingly culturally diverse. Uh, one of the most incredible cities I, I've lived in. I think about Houston all the time. I, I love the community there. Uh, there's a lot of togetherness with that. Um, so I think instead of feeling like an outsider that you might in a, a bigger city with more you know, established rules, regulations, things like that. Houston had, and, and Texas in general, had a way of being kind of the fine dining wild, wild west to where it was like, come one, come all, and we'll collaborate with really amazing ideas. And I had a, the opportunity to work with a lot of really incredibly talented and driven people uh, from all types of different backgrounds that were super welcoming to any and all ideas, criticisms, concerns, etc but really more in a positive light. So that had a huge impact on how we treated guests. And also it's hard to, it's hard not to smile when you say the word y'all. Yeah. <laughs> y'all, it does make you feel good. Yeah. Right? I, I did see somebody the other day though, on, on social media said, you cannot say the word y'all unless you're actually from Texas. And I was like, that's, that's bullshit. Y'all should be universal. You should all be able to utilize a good y'all. Yeah. I thought that was silly. Yeah. So I defriended her and I'll never talk to you. (laughs) You know, it's funny because I want to talk to you too, because I first met you at uh, Texom, Mm -hmm. which is a big event every year held in Dallas. uh, Well, just outside of Dallas. And, you know, as a sponsor, you know, we were doing an event and I remember I was running around like crazy, you know, super stressed, trying not to show your stress. And I was looking for like an HDMI cable. And I remember like, that's when I first met you and you were sort of one of the people on the team of the staff that was sort of uh, one of the captains, if you will, one of the higher up people. And, and you just had this like um, amazing, like air of calm about you. And I was like, you often hear restaurant managers talk about is like, you know, being like still like a duck on top of the water, but then your mm-hmm. feet are like, you know, flapping like right. below. And I was like, holy crap. Like I was just struck by like the way you, 
stopped to interact with me and were like so present. And I was like, wow, I know that you have 8 million things to do. And you're literally like giving me full attention about an HDMI cable right now. And it's like, so comforting. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's an amazing trait though. Like to be like kind of that calm under all that pressure. Is that something that's come naturally for you or have you had to kind of work on that over the years? I think a, a bit of both, you know, I was tossed into, into, I, I jokingly say when I, when I was put into the role at Podgy House, uh, there was a lot of, a lot of moving parts that, that put me there. And I was really relatively young and super green. And I, I jokingly say I was tossed like a, like a snow cone into hell, see if I melt. And I didn't. And I was, I was again, that, that those experiences, there was plenty of tough days, obviously plenty of tough moments, uh, but being able to kind of stand your ground. And like you said, be present in that moment. I think is really one of the pillars of, of, of hospitality. It's kind of like that, you know, when you're in a really busy restaurant or bar, you're like, God, where's the bathroom in this joint? And someone stops and shows you the way. And I think that's such a simple gesture, but it's one of the truest things that you can stop what you're doing. It can wait. There's no such thing as a wine emergency. It, it's going to be okay, you know? And I have tried to emulate that and, and watching some of my, uh, you know, mentors or, or industry icons really hone in on that skill um, that I think comes natural by the way that, you know, my parents are amazing and they're always, always kind of showed us the right way to do things. Um, but really harnessing that into focusing on what's in front of you. And if someone asks for help, they generally do need it. Um, and in, a, in an environment as crazy as Texom, it's so important to be calm. Talk to me about that because I, you know, it's, it's funny. I feel like, um, there's a lot of talk now in any business world, leadership training, et cetera, people talking about mindfulness and being present. You had mentioned some of your mentors and they kind of exhibited some of those traits as well. Is that something that you've kind of seen and those are the kind of people that you really have gravitated to are those that are able to like, amidst all the craziness going on is to be fully present? Yes, without a doubt, without a doubt. Yeah. I've, I've had, you know, I think with, with that, focusing on some amazing experiences and, and again, industry leaders and icons and this and that, but you also build from bad experiences. And I think, you know, the, turning those negative experiences into a positive light is such an important part of daily life. Um, but also in, in a business that's in the, in the seconds business. And we are definitely in the restaurant and wine business kind of in that, in the seconds business. It has to happen hot sweet right now. And you got to kind of stay calm, cool and collected, at least, at least on the surface. But looking, looking to that and those kinds of pillars of, of being present, that's who I've always tried to be and, and emulate. But also I think that that's something that, that has kind of come plus or minus naturally through my reflection on, on good, bad, and the ugly experiences in, in my professional career. What I love about restaurant work, you know, especially like managers like yourself that have spent so many years in the, in the restaurant industry is like, there's a lot of traits and characteristics that you've adopted and really maturely developed over the years that sometimes people don't, aren't aware of. Like, if you were to kind of take what you've learned and say, you know, talk to CEO, CEOs in a completely different business from the restaurant world and tell them, hey, here's what I've learned about being present, about being in the arena when stuff's happening, 
what would you kind of tell them they need to focus on? That's a great, great question. One of them, I think, is, is listening. Uh, listening skills are so important. A lot of the, the great advice that I've, I've gotten over the years is when you, know, when you travel or you're at someone else's establishment or whatever, listen, observe, and watch. All of the different movements, I think people's communication skills will kind of tell you exactly who they are, whether they know it or not. So I, I think that's such a huge thing. Listening to me is part, a huge part of, of the communication you know, arc and umbrella. And in certain companies, the way people are treated, I think it depends on, on what you're doing. But if, as a CEO, I would, I would encourage them to, you know, to listen and build a bigger table. And you know, those, those kinds of traits, anytime that I've been in those scenarios, what I've always been blown away by are, are people who are at the upper echelon of their, of their arena who listen to what I have to say when I'm discussing wine or a region, when we're at a table full of, you know, all different uh, backgrounds, economically, uh, racially, et cetera, and so on. Uh, and I've been fortunate to be at these tables with so many different minds and, and this and that. And when it's, when it's my turn to speak, everybody's really in tune. And when it's my turn to listen, I'm so fascinated by all of the different stories and directions that people come from. So I think listening is such a key part to, to understanding a business, to understanding your clientele, understanding your, your personnel, um, and, and taking all of those things moving forward and trying to pick the best things out of, out of your listening to communicate what you're trying to portray. How much does um, teamwork matter to what you do? It's everything. I mean, again, I've had the good fortune of working with some incredible, incredible people all throughout my career. And, you know, the, the cheesy slogan, team make, teamwork, make the dream work, but it's true. It, it absolutely does. And it's so paramount to making the whole thing work. One of the things uh, is it, you can take a restaurant for, for since we're talking about that, um, as a prime example, every piece of the puzzle is crucial to making the whole thing work, whether you're a member of the dish palace uh, or you're at the front door or you're the person parking cars uh, or cooking the food or serving the fine wine or setting the table. All of those things have to work in harmony, especially, you know, at the, at the three Michelin star level, that stuff has to almost be non-touch. It almost has to feel like it didn't happen. And it takes so much effort to not only get that engine starting the right way, but a whole lot of respect for, for each member of the team. So, you know, starting with a thing that I have been a staple or stapled down in almost all of the restaurants I've worked in is no longer is the dish palace uh, called the dish pit uh, because you wouldn't want to work in a pit and neither do they. So the, the kings and queens, the, the princes and princesses of, of the dish palace really are one of the most important pieces of, of a restaurant and anything that you can do to make their lives easier or a little bit uh, less chaotic is so crucial because without them, if you've ever worked in a restaurant and had to take over the dish palace, there's a, an unbelievable level of, of intensity and respect or lack thereof uh, by fellow team members just throwing things at you all night long. You know, So I think that level of teamwork and courtesy is such a huge part of gelling a, a team together and making the whole thing work and seem seamless and flawless. Let's say that you're in a situation where, you know, call it like the sommelier team or a team that you're working closely with every night, you know, every day. Let's say that like 
you're working with somebody who has a lot of talent. They have a lot of skill, but there's something in their attitude that's like blocking them. And then therefore you guys in the team and you guys sit down with them and, and help correct that. What do you, what do you say? You know, those are, it's, it's tricky. Most, most things are, you know, in the eye of the beholder. So if there is an attitude adjustment or something along those lines that needs to happen, that's a pretty simple conversation. Uh, really want to listen to what the issue is or where the frustration might be coming from, or is it something that, you know, I'm not doing as a team member or one of the other team members might, might not be uh, participating in as much, maybe doing more of the glorified stuff like, popping the big bottles, but not keeping a clean station, et cetera, and so on. Um, so I think having an open dialogue with a team is such a, a crucial part of that. So sitting them down, never really scolding someone, but trying to figure out what the root of an issue might be and how we can do it better. And I think that level of kind of constant innovation and tweaking, and we're in a human business. So you're working with human beings. Everybody's got the right to have a shitty day, you know, and sometimes it's as simple as that. Sometimes it's disenfranchisement, but I think uh, one, of my, one of my mentors told me a long time ago that it was everything's fixable. Nothing is ever broken permanently um, and everything is fixable. There's always a solution, always. Uh, and sometimes, you know, finding that solution is tricky, but having honest, real conversations and sometimes it's allowing uh, a team member to have a grievance and get it out, you know? Simple yeah. as that. I, I do wonder though, sometimes, you know, like I, I've worked with certain people in restaurants whose attitude is just so bad that there is no fixing it. Sure. And I sometimes felt like we knew for a long time that this was a problem employee. And, you know, like you said, it's, it, it is so team related. Everyone's so connected. Does there come a point though, where you're like, this is unfixable. This person's unfixable. They got to go. And I think you, it's, it's on you to act quickly, right? And go, no, they're, they're not fixable. We're getting rid of them. Has that happened to you in, in your career too, where you see that and you act quickly and, and you know that that's what you need to do? Unfortunately, yes. In painting the pretty picture of everything's fixable, I think the underlying stuff, the layers in that are, are at least give it a, a swing. I think everybody has a shot at redemption, but when it goes to a certain point or it just doesn't, it doesn't work, you know? For the betterment of the team, usually it's a, a pretty quick and relatively painless thing. It may not work at this establishment, and it's happened to me. I've I've been that person and grown from it. Um, you know, so hopefully, hopefully in that arena, uh, somebody learns from their shortcomings or mistakes and fixes them, gets better. And hopefully, that's the message that's sent, as opposed to you know, forgive my language, but fuck you, you suck it out but sometimes promoting an employee to guest is, is a necessary thing. Sometimes like getting let go from a job and I've been let go from a job before, you know, that I learned a lot from, you know, sometimes you have to be let go you, without going into details. You mentioned that did happen to you again, without details of what happened, what did you then take from that experience and learn that would make you better for your next job? One of them is being like, completely present in the moment, something that I've, I've had to work on punctuality, uh, for sure. Uh, you know, on time is late is something that I always have to remind myself of. I have little reminders at all times to be early because I have a wandering mind and I, you know, like me sitting down at a computer to do work, 
I really have to put it in like 30 minute bites because I know that that's, I'm not an office guy. I, I probably never will be. It's just tough for me. Uh, but I think the things that I've learned the most when you get kicked out of the building or get your ass kicked is like, did I do, did I do everything that I possibly could to make this work, to, to be the best version of me? And when the answer is no, I think there's more layers that you need to pull back. Like, what am I doing in, in, my, in my life, in my daily life to prep myself to be the best version that I could be for the team? And in some cases, the fit, it just doesn't fit, you know? And it's, I think, importance in recognizing that on both parties is so huge. And I don't think people do it enough where it's like, uh, you know, you're in a situation, you're like, I don't know about this. If, if your gut's telling you it's not a thing, then trust your gut on some of those occasions. But in things that, uh, that I've definitely learned is not only to be on time, on point, on message, but be consistent. Because you can be good at something sometimes, but being good consistently helps you become great. And in, in the experiences that I've had where, where it didn't work out, I, I wasn't consistent. I wasn't consistently good. And I think that that takes a little bit of soul searching. And sometimes you got to get kicked off the horse or the camel to figure that out. You got you to spit a little bit on the side <laughs> of the road and move on. Exactly. Support your state one sip at a time. And drink for Washington. The wine the world is talking about is farmed and made by families right here. Now they need your help. So sip a cab or chill with rosé. However you enjoy wine, just make it a Washington wine. Raise a glass, support your local wineries, and drink for Washington. Brought to you by the farmers and families of Washington Wine, who encourage you to sip responsibly. You've done a lot of staff education at the restaurants that you've worked at, and you know, it's no secret that a lot of the people that work at a restaurant, front of the house, back of the house, whatever, like this is not their career. They don't have the same level of passion and commitment that you have and other people putting in, you know, 60 to 80 hours a week. But, you know, it's your job to like teach them and get them on board with what's going on, whether it's a career for them or not. So tell me about that. Like if you're working with a team of, of say, front of the house staff, waiters, busboys, whatever, and you're trying to teach them about beverage, you're trying to teach them about service, you're trying to teach them about food. If you could just instill like three things in them, be it a mindset, be it something to focus on, be it something to learn or know, what would those three things be? That's a great question. You know, some of, some of restaurant work comes naturally to people. You see that all the time. Some of it, you really do have to kind of learn and teach piece by piece. One of them is patience that I always try to instill. You're not going to learn everything that there is about food, wine, beverage, service overnight. There's always going to be kind of a running, rotating task list of things that you, you could do, you could get better at. So be patient, not just with yourself, with your teammates and with guests. The other is what I mentioned earlier is consistency. And I think that's something that, that, from the best professional athletes to the most accredited chefs and sommeliers always struggle on. And that's something that we could all work on is, is consistency, be consistent. And then I think that the other is even if working in restaurants as a waiter is not your end goal or being a sommelier is not your end goal, when you're doing something, whether it's busing tables or running food, running drinks, try to be the best that you possibly can at it because that, that, dedication to that skill will 
pay you dividends down the road in whatever it is that you try to do. I love that. I mean, your wine and beverage knowledge is off the charts and there's, there's no mistake in that. You know, so few people are actually on that level, of course. They don't understand it all. They frankly don't want to get that geeky. So when you're dealing with people that they're curious about wine or, you know, they, they want to know more, they want to get excited about it and they don't want a master class on soil and terroir and geology, like in your time teaching people, what have you kind of decided like, okay, these are some of like the, the buttons I know that I'm going to push that they're going to get excited about this category. Yeah, for sure. One of them, I think that human nature is completely attached to is stories. So good stories uh, and understanding that story is part of learning anything. Uh, but in particular with wine, it's such a, a, a vast thing and it's all interconnected to, to the human story. Uh, so getting people excited about the story and, and storytelling is one of the things that got really got me into wine. And I try to emulate that. So if it's getting someone excited about something, adding a little bit of humor and entertainment value and high energy always helps. Using terms that aren't geeky all the time. Like I talk about it all the time, not saying acid or acidity or tannin at a table. I think that those words they don't sound great when you're discussing wine or food. You know, it's kind of like saying fat at a table. It, yes, it's a fatty piece of meat or fish, whatever, but maybe the marbling richness or texture. So finding other, other words, using your thesaurus as a guide and really talking about the yum factor, uh, the deliciousness of something. Uh, so really the end point of all of the descriptors that we're using or, or whether you're in the court of masters or, sommeliers or, or WSET or whatever it is as, as your education platform, even if you're just a novice, those blind tasting drills are really to discuss and pull out the important pieces of those wines. So flavor profile, instead of saying, you know, acid, using something like fresh and getting, giving people confidence to use words like that, as opposed to like tannin and pH and and all these other components that would be, you know, in, in wine, in the scientific side, making it more of a story to tell that story about the wine that they had in the glass. Where does it come from? Who makes it? Why is this such a special place? And maybe a, a few details here and there about, about each one of those, but really and truly the end of the day is trying to instill some level of, of empowerment and confidence into the person that you're teaching. So they don't, you know, they don't get discouraged if they say, you know, bacon fat on a white wine, and, you know, sure. If that's what you get, like, it's, it's a subjective thing, but that would lead towards, a, you know, maybe an, a different grape variety. And you would see that a lot in this one. So try this. And I really think getting people excited and to try the wines from all over the place is really the biggest piece and the hurdle to, to jump over. Not everyone's going to be a champagne head. Not everybody's going to be a Riesling geek. Not everybody is going to love Syrah the first time that they try it. But giving them a bit of a sense and some some texture of the color palette of, of how vast wine is uh, is pretty pretty empowering. I always found like when I was learning about wine as a server in a restaurant, I I was intimidated like hell. I mean, I was so scared. You know, it's like I didn't want people to even open the wine list in front of me because I was like I, I'm so out of my element here. And I remember Laura Manick, who was my first wine teacher, she basically like taught us something super simple, which was like okay. There's light body, medium body, and full body in a wine. And here's how you think of that. You know, light body is like skim milk. 
and medium body is like whole milk and full body is like half and half. And I was like, Oh man, that, that makes sense. Like, that's huge. Like I get that. And, and she kind of gave us like these two, like very simple boxes to operate in and to talk about. So, you know, when somebody asks about the wine, you know, tell them, you know, tell them about the body and then tell them like some of the general fruit flavors they can expect and tell them this and that. And it was like these three simple little things, but it was like a set approach. It was like, you're going to talk about the body. You can talk about the flavor and you're going to talk about, you know, if, if it's going to go with your food or not or whatever. Well, I don't even remember what it was now, but like, I was so empowered by that. Like, I felt like I hit the floor and I was like, I want to talk about wine all day long. And I didn't know anything, but I knew enough about the box to talk about wine that I was like open to the conversation. Is and that part of it? I mean, you, how do you empower people to like be comfortable with this subject that's so damn frustrating and scary for people? One, Laura Manick's incredible. Two, that's such a great, tangible, uh, you know, example of, of, of the different levels of, of wine and the wine body. Um, and that's such a key way to get people excited. One is also to be willing to try it. Obviously, you know, when I worked at, at the Post Oak Hotel, we had a huge staff of people with all different varying degrees of, of give a shit. So the level of, of A, entertainment, but B, we had an amazing budget there to, with Travis Hinkle and Keith Goldston, who are both incredible, gave us pretty much free reign to pull things. Uh, so we were able to get people excited, sometimes on price point, which was a, a, an amazing luxury to have. But for the most part, what, what everybody reacted to was discussing in like three to five words or less what's amazing about the wine. And being kind of sandwiched in those parameters gave them the ability to expand on three to five things, five to 10 things. Now I can have a, a whole conversation about, you know, a low, medium, uh, a low, medium and high price point in, in some of these different categories. So I think the commitment to education, and for me, it's been my personal commitment to helping people, whether it be just the monetary financial benefit of, uh, of selling wine to, to tables or the lifelong sport that is enjoying wine and, and learning more about it. Because that, to me, that's what it is and always has been. So I've always found success in trying to draw out people's own curiosities with flavor profiles and getting them to talk about it, whether they're right, wrong, or otherwise. Uh, I've found a lot of, we've had a lot of success with that in the past. Why has wine become so intimidating? Why has it become so damn serious? How do we break that? How do we, how do we shake that off? You're leading the way, man. How do we, how do we do this? I mean, there's a lot of factors to it. Obviously, one of my major pet peeves is when I see people go, and I can't wait to see them do it again in the future, but going out to bars and restaurants and wearing like their, their, their pins and their swag. I'm like, man, take it off when you're going to a restaurant or a bar, like you're going to help that person make, make their martini or whatever. And sometimes I think with, with testing and accolades and things like that, that there becomes this like pressure and intensity and lack of inclusion, uh, which I think some of those can be hurdles. Some of those can be fences. Some of those can be total walls and keeping people out or at bay, which is the absolute wrong thing. Because the more people who, who, who like wine, who enjoy wine, the better wines that are going to be produced, the better, the better restaurants will be at, at serving and, 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 you know, taking care of those wines and those guests. But I think letting go of stuffiness is probably the biggest deal. Kicking that to the curb 
you know, if someone doesn't know something or mispronounces something, it's really not the end of the world. It's totally a-okay. I mean, I'm, I'm from Texas, so people would order things like Gaston Chicket. And I'd be like, I know exactly what you mean, and I'll go get that. And that's a delicious choice. I'm like, is that how you say it? Gaston Chicket? I'm like, fucking A. It is. <laughs> you know? And for um, those that don't know, that's a, that's a champagne producer, right? Right. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, taking, we, we talked, we touched on it a little bit earlier, but kind of taking that pretension out of it. And, and really make people feel comfortable is, is a way that you can kind of unintimidate wine. I do think that it's intimidating when you open or see like at Papa's Brothers, when you drop that list off at, at someone who's maybe for the first time in charge of ordering wine for, you know, their bosses or, or entertaining clients, it's like, holy shit, you know, you drop that thing off and it's 250 pages and it's, it, 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 it could, it is in Greek. It's in, you know, all different languages. There's so much to it. And that's where I think, you know, sommeliers and wine professionals can come in and be such a, a beacon of light because you recognize that maybe somebody has got some sweaty palms holding onto that wine list and, yeah. <laughs> and get in there and, and, and start asking some questions and start the dialogue and take the pressure completely off of that person uh, so that everybody else at the table will have a wonderful time. Yeah, that's it. You, you spent hundreds of hours studying to, to gain the certifications that you have. You know, for those who don't know, your level being an advanced sommelier with a quartermaster sommelier is, is an incredible accomplishment. So, you know, first of all, congratulations on that. I can't even imagine the, the regime of study that you went through to, to get to that point in terms of your service skills, your knowledge, your tasting, all that. So at the end of this now, you've not only gotten good at your wine knowledge, but you've gotten good at studying. Yeah. So what are, for those people who are starting their studies, uh, what are some hacks that you've found? What are some approaches to studying that you you want to pass on to them to make it make it easier for them? Which is which is such a cool thing because you you think about you know chefs and and other people in businesses like if they could go back and change some of the ways that they did things about their process to get to the end result that they want or that they're seeking. Wow, what time would be saved? I do think that starting with a process. And committing to that process is so crucial. Um, would have saved me a ton of time in the beginning. We touched on it earlier, but some of the things that I talk about are direct correlations in, in my own personal experience in the journey. So trust the process, but have a process, have a plan and know that plan inside and out. So whenever, whenever I, I gear up to, to get ready for an exam or a competition or whatever, some of it's been trial by, by fire, trial by combat. Um, the very best example, and I'll try to be brief with this, uh, but the very best example was my first time uh, competing at Texom, uh, the year that I think it was 2009 or 2010, feels like a million years ago, but June Rodil was the winner. And I thought I knew a lot about wine. And I walked into the exam and one of the questions was, uh, what, is the what is the largest uh, production varietal in the Russian Federation. And I was like, fuck, what? <laughs> and I was like, that was question number one or two. And I think <laughs> Tim Gazer wrote that exam and they rewrote it like the night before. And obviously there's money on the table and it's a competition, so it's super hard. And I walked into the service room and it was so intense. And what five seconds or five minutes felt like a blink of an eye and also a hundred years at the same time, especially when you're, when you're shitting the bed table side and you don't know anything, you know, it's, it's not a fun place to be. 
so, you know, kind of circling back to what we talked about earlier, sometimes you have to get your ass handed to you to understand what it takes to, to get there. And in any one of those processes, you know, another cheesy cliche, but my dad used to say it all the time, uh, failing to plan is planning to fail. And anytime that I hear those words all the time, you know, anytime that I'm getting ready for something. So I really take a look at what I know and know cold and that simple review and continue to, to keep those fresh. I will not miss a gimme putt. I'm not going to miss a question on Burgundy. I'm not going to miss a Grand Cru and uh, Class A in Bordeaux. It's just not gonna happen. That's straight up rote memorization. There's no excuse. The other part is taking a real hard look at yourself and knowing what you suck at. And like Portugal, it's hard, it's hard. It's really, really hard. It's technically a romance language, but it's hard to wrap your head around that vowel system. It doesn't come nearly as natural as Spanish or Italian or French pronunciation might. It's a lot, lot less intuitive. So you gotta really grind. Germany is hard for a lot of people. It was very hard for me to learn those places. So kind of pinpointing what you suck at and taking a hard look at that, putting a pro and con list together on your process of like, I'm awesome at this, I suck at this. So I'm gonna build my confidence here. I'm gonna kick my own ass here. I'm gonna spend more hours on the stuff that I'm really not great at so that those things can be in this column. And that, that process, you'll see that that other side of the list that you're not great at become smaller and smaller and smaller. And your review items are the things that you really wanna be working on closer to an exam time or whatever the goal uh, the end goal of your studies is. So as those things shrink, you're really spending more of your time on reviewing, refreshing, and fleshing out the stuff that you're really good at, which becomes much bigger. Well, congratulations again, man. And it's, uh, I, I can't even imagine what you have locked up in that brain of yours. We are gonna do uh, some rapid fire questions. Awesome. What's your biggest pet peeve when you're dining in a restaurant? Dirty glassware. What's your favorite movie moment? My favorite movie moment in history, Casablanca. Here's looking at you, kid. Ooh, wow, classic, classic gentleman you are. <laughs> Who's the last person you sent mail to and what was it? My, my nephew, uh, and it was uh, like actual written mail. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. thank you to, uh, to, to my sister. <laughs> it didn't mean the email. <laughs> Thank you, not to your sister. All right, because you've worked at some serious steakhouses, I have two two meat related questions. <laughs> First of all, what's your favorite cut of steak and why? That's a tough question, and it is a a dead heat. It's somewhere between a ribeye and a strip, and I realize that a lot of people will say you can't have both, but I call bullshit, and that's why I order both at restaurants and have more people at the table so I can have both. I love the flavorful intensity and the richness of a ribeye, especially when it's done right. It's, it's awesome. And it's such a fun uh, cut to pair with all different types of wines. And then the New York strip is, it's my favorite to, to cook uh, personally. If I'm ever cooking steaks, it's either that or like a, a lower end butcher's cut, like a hanger. Uh, but I love the New York strip. I just think it's such a, it's such an incredible balance of, uh, it's the connoisseur's steak. But again, uh, if you're going to play with, with all different types of, of wines, it's, it's good with everything. Okay. What's your, be what's your best advice for someone to up 
their steak making game at home? Ah, uh, let it temper. Um, you know, a lot of people keep it in the fridge for a long time and, and that's a very American thing. We're very scared of, of pathogens. You don't need to leave it out overnight by any means, but a half an hour, an hour before you cook it, let some of those enzymes break down, let you can see it be, be glossy. And, you know, right before you're about to cook it, be patient. Uh, you don't need to blast it on heat or blast it on the grill, but slow and steady wins the race. Now, are you salting it and peppering it before no, you leave it out? Or I just... salt first. I salt first. There's uh, a healthy amount of butter involved in the process. Butter and, of course, garlic, whole, whole clove garlic in the pan. I think cooking a steak in the pan is just the best way. And then pepper usually comes after, but usually for me, it's seasoned with salt and then finished with uh, Muldon sea salt. Simple. I've been doing the uh, reverse sear. Oh, yeah. Like, I don't know, like two months ago, somebody, I had went to the store and like all they had was a porterhouse. And I was like, Jesus, if I'm committing to this like $35 piece of meat, I'm going to cook it right. So I asked some friends and they were like, oh, reverse sear for sure. And I, I hadn't done that before. And that's like all I do now. Really? Pork chops. Oh yeah. Pork chops, any steaks. It's fantastic. Are you, are you a reverse sear discipline? Arian? I'm not a reverse sear discipline, but I do. We, you know, in our house, we have a whole bunch of, uh, of culinary gadgets. So I, I do love to, to, to sous vide as well. Sous vide that, yeah. Yeah, I, I love it because I can manipulate it. It also saves me time. I can do a whole bunch of other other things while, while that baby's in the water uh, and then pull it out, give it a moment and then throw it on a, a hot pan. Everybody wins. Yeah, man, love it. What's the most disgusting habit that you had as a child? <laughs> I, I, I would probably say that Maybe not disgusting, but a long-lived, uh, I, I sucked my thumb for a long time, like for a long time, not until I was like 18, but I was like, how long? <laughs> past the point where it was like cool anymore, you know what I mean? So like I was, I was probably eight or nine or 10 when I, when I gave that habit up, I'd have to fact check that with my mom and dad, but that- Did your mom and dad have to put that disgusting tasting like fingernail yeah. polish on your thumb? So yeah. you could- Anytime. And for the most part, you just chew through it, right? Until you got to the good stuff. Yeah. (laughs) All right. There's two types of people in this world. Those who clean their windows and those who don't. Which one are you? Clean windows. You clean your windows. Mm -hmm. Come on. I call, I call BS on that. Like what windows in the car, windows in the house, windows in your house. Really? It's It's very cathartic for me. Like, Obviously, we have a dog. He is high energy. He is big. Uh, so the windows usually have a uh, dog nose on them and it drives wow. me nuts. So yeah, both sides, inside and out. I live I mean, in an apartment, I, so that's a little easier. Uh, you what? I live in, in an apartment, so I don't have as many huge windows, but I definitely clean the hell out of them. Yeah. I, I pegged you as a non-window clean guy. <laughs> I apologize. I should have I known. But I didn't think about dog nose tracks, which... You, you got to keep up with those. Yeah. So your dog's name is Brunello. Yes. Of course. So I have a multi-part question here. Have you ever tasted his dog food? If so, what did it taste like? And three, what would you pair with it? Mm, great question. The answer is yes, I have out of sheer curiosity, but he, it was because he didn't like it. We switched his food to a, to a more natural food. And I was like, why does he not like it? 
what did it taste like? <laughs> exactly like it smells delicious. I'm kidding, of course. It, I mean, it tastes like, it's hard to explain. It's like this savory dried granola thing. So it's one of the reasons why uh, like savory, salty, crunchy. I would pair champagne with it because it <laughs> does, does Brunello drink champagne? No, he's, he's not a drinker. Um, but we found out in during the quarantine time, he's a big fan of, uh, of, of carrots and watermelon, which is because huh. I never thought it pegged him as a vegetable guy. Anytime that that would happen, a carrot or something would happen on the floor, he didn't really pay it any mind. And the other day I, I threw him a carrot and he sat in the, in, this was a couple of weeks ago, but he sat in the kitchen the entire time like, where's mine? Carrot again, yeah. Maybe yeah. the watermelons because his food's so damn dry. Like he just yeah. something in his mouth that's moist. <laughs> All right. We're going to do the Psalm light drawing challenge. Did you bring a pen and piece of paper? I, I did. I, I actually have a, a, a sketch pad for you. Oh, you're ready to sketch. I mean, I, I don't know this. Okay. Draw here. So I don't know. Okay. Let me think. What can we have you? Oh, okay. You, you mentioned to me. This sounds like a, a, a romantic like post that you put on a social dating website, but I think you said to me you, you enjoy cliff hikes. I, I, I do. I enjoy okay. um, I, I enjoy hikes, especially in California on the coastline. Beautiful. So we're going to have you draw a, a, a cliff with a couple of hikers on it, maybe at sunset. And I don't know if you're going to hate me for this or if like you're ready to just destroy this. But you mentioned earlier, like Portugal was your kind of like weak spot. So I'd imagine you've actually pretty studied deep. So you have 45 seconds to draw your cliff hike romantic scene while telling us about the wines of Portugal. 45 seconds to draw and telling you about the wines of Portugal. Yes. Are you ready? I think so. So am I doing this at the same time? Oh, yeah. All right. Go. <laughs> All right. So. One of the things I love so much about Portugal is it's rich in history. So Portugal was such a uh, integral part of all things um, trade. Uh, you know, the beauty of, of some of the wines that'll knock your socks off in, in places like Portugal are from the simple to the completely intense and divine. So uh, for me, one of the things that uh, I learned a, a lesson the hard way perhaps, uh, is not putting my nose up to Vino Verde, which is one of my absolute favorites uh, now. So Vino Verde, super simple. Alfarino is the grape variety coming from like the greener side, northern end of, of, of Portugal. And what's beautiful about it uh, is its, its depth and complexity all the while being super simple. Um, so you've reached time, sir, but that was... I didn't quite get to the humans, but, uh, well, I mean, that was very good. Oh, wow. Well, I'm going to give you five extra seconds to quickly draw the humans. Okay. They're going to be stick figures <laughs> and it's going to be awesome. Uh, and we'll do a dog stick figure as well. Oh, is that uh, Brunello? Yeah. He, lo he loves the hikes as well. So now there's some, some human beings. There you go. Oh, it's complete, man. That's really great. Drawing like a six-year-old. But I will uh, finish with, uh, if, if you haven't had the wines of Kolarish Coastal near uh, Lisbon, they're one of those United Heritage, World Heritage sites uh, that will eventually go away by urban sprawl and kind of vineyard acreage uh, is being taken alive. So get them while you can.
dude, crush, crush the Portugal. Thank you. The, the, the Great Morgan of Verden. It's amazing. The and wine growers of Portugal. Thank you for that, uh, that, that great, great description. Um, uh, so last question for you. You know, you came out to Washington State for road trip, uh, this inbound trade program that we learn uh, that we that we run every year. And it was awesome to have you out. And, and I know that uh, you learned a lot. So, you know, we're, we're a young region. We're trying to get education out there and really get you know trade to understand what's happening in Washington. Can you talk a little bit about maybe your conceptions of Washington before you came and then when you walked when you went home after being in Washington, what, what, what were your changed uh, perceptions of what's happening out here in wine? A lot. Uh, so I had a, the opportunity to go to W2U many years before uh, I went to uh, road trip. And what my preconceived notions coming into to road trip when, in 2019 was kind of what I had based on in the access of wine that I had from, from Washington and like, over the years, I kind of stuck with some of the, the same producers. The first thing uh, that I that I took away was the incredible depth of style, regional focus, sub-region focus, and and commitment to quality. The other big one is is the sense of community uh, that I think is very similar to what what a lot of the growers have in, in Sonoma, specifically uh, Healdsburg, where where I work and play, and it employs a ton of people. Uh, the wine industry does employ a ton of people throughout. The sense of community throughout Washington was something that really took me back. And maybe it was there when I went to W2U, but I was too young and dumb to, to notice. But what was incredible was the time that people spent really engaging in, in our questions and, and feeding us incredible nuggets of information with incredible glasses of wine in the middle of harvest, really like in the middle of the craziest my pants are on fire time of the year and being present in that moment and willing and happy to do it, walk us through their, their process and, and what a day looks like in, in a winery in Washington. And then the third big piece is how different, how vast the state is really in all different levels of, of climate. Cause you know, we started in, in Seattle and kind of work our way to uh, the Southeastern corner in, in Walla Walla. And all of those different terrains, it's like really and truly being in, in, in a different country. It's kind of like when people associate uh, a state like Texas with just kind of this wild, wild west and tumbleweed roadrunner looking environment where it's so vast, it's so different. There's hills, there's peaks and valleys, and there's so much of the state that, that is so breathtakingly beautiful from, you know, these incredible mountains to this really unique soil structure in, in the last place that I visited, which was the rocks of Milton Freewater and such an unbelievably cool soil structure. You definitely have to wear boots and ankle braces uh, and maybe a back brace while you're doing harvest there. But those are the big three things, uh, specifically the, the community. Yeah, it's a special, it is a special community. Well, I, I just wanna say thank you so much, uh, Chris, for your support of all that we do here in Washington. You know, thank you for your time today. Thank you all for listening. This has been Some Light. We'll catch you next time with some of our other favorite wine pros from around the country. Uh, cheers so much, Chris. Awesome. Cheers. Thank you.